Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode, we're bringing you highlights from the Society's Centenary Conference held up in Edinburgh last month. We've got stories of sneaky sheep, substandard racing stallions, the Vikings of the Scottish Isles and a Cayley with a scientific spin. Plus, news from the front lines of the sperm wars. Hopefully, you can't have failed to notice that the Genetic Society is celebrating its centenary this year, recognising 100 years since the very first meeting in the summer of 1919. The final event of the year was a scientific conference up in Edinburgh, bringing together hundreds of geneticists across a range of fields to hear the latest discoveries and reflect on a century of progress. There's an extra Edinburgh centenary coincidence, as the Animal Breeding Research Station of the Government's Board of Agriculture and Fisheries was established in the city in 1919 and evolved over the next 10 years to become the University of Edinburgh's Institute of Animal Genetics. Sadly, I can't bring you interviews with every speaker, but here are a few highlights to give you a flavour of the event. Huge thanks to Kay Bolton and the organising committee for a fantastic conference, from which I'm sure my liver and my dancing feet will eventually recover. Take a boat 40 miles out into the choppy Atlantic, off the northwest coast of Scotland, and you'll get to St Kilda. It's a collection of islands that makes up the westernmost of the Outer Hebrides. St Kilda is home to a large flock of soy sheep, which have lived wild in their windswept home for 4,000 years. They are rather attractive animals, with rugged brown fleeces, large horns and very distinctive eyebrows. Susan Johnston and her colleagues at the University of Edinburgh have been following these isolated animals since the 1980s, carefully documenting the population rises and crashes over the years, and more recently using sophisticated analytical genetic tools to take a closer look at the genes of individual animals in the larger population. But in order to genotype a soy sheep, first you've got to catch it. And, as I found out when I sat down with Susan to talk about her research, that involves a lot of legwork. So we go out for several expeditions each year. So the first is for lambing, which is around April time. And um, we're not allowed to use anything like sheepdogs on the island, so we have to do it all by hand. So (laughs) we basically stock the lambs quite soon after they're born. And we get in really quickly and we take like a small blood sample and we give them a tag, which allows us to identify them for the rest of their lives, you know, just through binoculars or whatever. And then, you know, once we've caught them, weed them, then we just let them get on with their lives. And then every August, we go back to try and do a large-scale catch of as many individuals in the population as possible. And that is just straight up sheep. You're just running around sheep chasing. Yeah, exactly. God. So <laughs> we build these um, kind of corral traps, but we have to hide them behind some of the old ruins on the island. And then we basically have to use like sheep psychology to kind of trick them into running into the corrals. So they think that they're escaping from us, but we're actually capturing them. So it's a bit of manpower involved. It's really good fun. (laughs) And when we catch them as adults, we do all sorts of body measurements, take blood samples. We take faecal samples so that we can look at parasites and blood samples so that we can look at things like their immune responses and their antibodies and so on. So it's an amazing project because we have so much data on these individuals. And also because we take blood samples, we can also take DNA. So we can do things like paternity testing to work out how successful different rams are. And we can also use it for all sorts of genetic studies without manipulating the animals in any way. 
So tell me about some of the things you're studying at the genetic level. What are you particularly interested in? So the soy sheep are interesting because we see a lot of variation in traits that we wouldn't necessarily expect to see variation. So at a very simple level, there's things like their horn development. So the vast majority of male soy sheep have these large horns that they use for mating, but there's a really small proportion of males that have no horns at all. So this is weird because you expect if big-horned males are more successful... They big pa- old horny males, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they pass on their sort of big horn genes. So why on earth do we still have these small horn genes in the population? So that's one example. That was from my PhD work that I did quite a while ago now. We were able to kind of map the gene that controlled the horns. And when we found the gene, we were able to actually explain this evolutionary puzzle because we found that males that have two copies of this sort of big horn gene, they have very large horns and they have high reproductive success, but they die very young. Whereas the males who have two copies of this no horn gene, so they don't have any horns, they live quite long and they're able to kind of have these sneaky matings as well. So <laughs> they're able to find females that have They're just persistent. Yeah, so, you know, hats off to them. But if you're somewhere in the middle, if you have one copy of each, you have kind of medium-sized horns. You still have big horns, but they're not quite as big, but you live longer. So you can compete with the sort of younger bighorn males so it's almost like this kind of good strategy to be not quite the best but you want to be able to have offspring but also survive so we weren't able to get to this by looking at the horns alone but by getting to the genetic basis of it we were able to solve this puzzle and now that we have more sophisticated methods of typing many mutations through the genome and stuff we're able to use this information to map genes that underlie other kind of interesting phenotypes, so things like their colour, but also things like their body size. And my current research is even looking at how often they have kind of crossovers during meiosis, so it's very like specifically, you know, dry topic. But the wealth of information that we have, we can actually kind of investigate that quite easily, actually. So it's, it's a really nice system. So looking in a bit more detail at your work, because I find it interesting, you say, oh, it's not very interesting, it's meiotic crossovers, <laughs> but this is, this is kind of the genetic shuffling of the deck that happens with every generation, and that mixes up what you've got, it helps to create variation, which is then what evolution acts upon. So presumably that is quite important to know how much each individual sheep can shuffle. Yeah. So I guess just to give a bit more detail about what the process is. So this meiotic recombination is like the exchange of DNA between your the chromosomes that you've inherited from your parents. So this happens when you're creating eggs or sperm cells. And what it does is that it takes the chromosomes that you inherited, shuffles them, and then these are then what's transmitted to your offspring. And it's really important in evolution because it creates new combinations of genes that can be acted upon by selection. And it creates genetic diversity in populations, so it's a really important process. But it's also quite risky because this process of shuffling requires breaking the DNA, which can increase genetic mutations and so on. So it's really this process that goes on in nearly every animal, multi-celled animal and plant. But it's really kind of on a knife edge of getting this good level of shuffling and trying not to have too many mutations. So this is a question I'm really interested in. And the sheep are quite an interesting population to look at this because we have so much genetic information, but we also know how individuals are related. So we can track how these genes progress through generations and we can actually use statistical methods to work out how much shuffling has gone on. And we can work out if individuals that show more of this shuffling 
are actually increasing their success in the population by having more offspring, for example, or if perhaps having less shuffling is a bit better because you're less likely to have mutations and so on. So even though it's a very cellular process, we can actually use data from these long-term populations to look at this process in more detail. So what does the future hold for these soy sheep and their genetics and their evolution? Because they're an island population in a changing world. It's hard to know. So we, we are seeing kind of interesting patterns. Because we've studied them for more than 30 years, we can see a lot of these changes happening in real time. So the population's actually increasing on St Kilda in general, and the sheep are actually getting smaller. So we can't directly correlate this with things like climate change, but we can see that this is a trait that we've seen over time. So the work that some of us are doing at the genetic level, we're really interested to see if any of the genetic variation in the population has also changed over this time. And could it be due to things like their changing environment or you know, changing selection pressures on the population? So this is still a very open question. I think to understand the future of the sheep is hard to predict, but I think if we can look at more populations, similar populations of, for example, the red deer, but also long-term studies of birds and fish and so on, that we can start to get a much broader picture of how these changes are affecting the phenotypes, but also how they're affecting the genotypes of individuals. Susan Johnston from the University of Edinburgh, who was awarded the Genetic Society's Balfour Medal at the centenary meeting. And if you're interested in life on St Kilda, you can follow the adventures of the soy sheep through their very delightful Twitter account. They're at soy sheep. That's S-O-A-Y-S-H-E-E-P. Another speaker at the Centenary Conference who caught my attention was Peter Ellis, a man who is very interested in mouse sex. Uh, Genetic sex, that is, which is primarily determined by X and Y sex chromosomes. Male mice have X and Y sex chromosomes and produce sperm through a process called meiosis, half of which have an X chromosome, while the other half have a Y. Females with two X chromosomes use meiosis to produce eggs with only X chromosomes. So there's a 50-50 chance of an X or Y sperm meeting with an X-bearing egg. So you'd expect a 50-50 ratio of males to females, right? Well... For one family of mice in Peter's lab at the University of Kent, that is not the case. So, what's going on? In the mice I'm looking at, for some reason, that ratio, even though it's the most fundamental first law of Mendelian genetics, is broken. They actually produce 60% female pups and 40% male pups. And we're looking to understand why that is and whether we can apply it to something that's economically a bit more important than a mouse. The world does not need more female mice, but it could well do with more female dairy cattle or even more female pigs. Because in the pig industry, almost every sausage, every bit of bacon you've eaten has come from a female pig, because male pigs tend to develop an off flavour called boar taint and so they either get slaughtered before puberty which is an economic loss or they're castrated which presumably is a bit of a pain in the um a pain, a pain, pain in the pig pain, pain in the pig yes <laughs> a pain in the everything and it's an animal welfare issue and an economic issue for the farmers so what have you found out so far about these mice that seem to skew more female than male what, what's going on there Well, it turns out that what's actually going on is a kind of internal war inside their own genomes. I said we have the X and Y chromosome, where the the male passes on the X, then you have a female pup. If you pass it on the Y, then you have a male pup. But there are genes on these chromosomes, and so you can get genes on the X that fight 
to get into the next generation. So the genes on the X chromosome will be selected to try and produce more female offspring, and the genes on the Y chromosome selected to try and produce more male offspring. I say try, it's the processes of natural selection. This leads them into an arms race with each other. So what we find on the mouse is there are huge complexes of what we call amphiconic genes, genes that are present in many, many copies. So there might be 600 copies of a given gene on the Y chromosome, or several uh, tens or dozens of copies of the corresponding gene on the X chromosome. And if you get an imbalance in the copy number between the X and Y chromosomes, then it skews the sex ratio either towards females or towards males, and with transgenic techniques in the mice, we can push that uh, thermostat a little bit either way. We've worked out that these are the genes regulating sex ratio. We don't yet know quite how they then cause the uh, sex ratio to be different, but we do now know that it's down to the morphology of the sperm, the shape of the sperm, and how well they swim. So you've discovered that there can be this genetic difference that drives the sex ratio difference. But obviously, genetics then have to make an animal. So what do we know about how those genetic differences are actually driving this in the living animals? Well, these are genes that are expressed in the germ cells while they are forming sperm. So uh, to make sperm, you have to start with a cell that has two copies of every chromosome, and then it goes through the meiotic division, and it goes down to one that has one copy of each chromosome, so one copy of chromosome one in each uh, cell, and then you either get the X chromosome or the Y chromosome. So after they've undergone the meiotic uh, divisions, the X and Y are now in separate cells. So they, if you like, they no longer have each other's interests at heart, and they're able to fight with each other. So the genes on the X chromosome are producing something, we don't exactly know what, that seems to poison the morphology of the sperm. So it will make the sperm be hypercondensed and, and an abnormal shape. And it affects the Y-bearing sperm worse than the X-bearing sperm. So the X-bearing sperm are making something that crosses over to the Y-bearing sperm and prevents them functioning properly. So it's almost like um, a war between it's them. sperm wars. Yeah, sperm wars, literally. Um, the X chromosome produces things that prevent the Y-sperm swimming properly, prevent them developing the correct shape, and thereby means they're less effective at fertilising. How did you find this out? How do you tell whether like, something is a, a stronger sperm or a weaker sperm in the sperm wars? Well, the person I was working with when I was a postdoc called Paul Burgoyne, he noticed that... Um, there was a particular strain of mice in his colony that was producing excess females, so we work out that there's something going on there. But in terms of how we analyse the sperm function, we did actually almost the simplest experiment possible. We just took the sperm from an adult mouse with one of these deletions, put it at the bottom of the tube, and let it swim upwards through the tube. And then you can collect from the top of the tube, where you've got the faster swimming sperm, the middle, where you've got the sort of middling sperm, and the bottom, where you've got the ones that are kind of lazy, can't be bothered to get out of bed. And then we just count how many X-bearing cells or Y-bearing cells there are in each fraction. And we found that in the most fastest swimming population, we can see there's more X-bearing cells than Y-bearing cells. And we can then correlate this with the fact that the Y-bearing cells are a worse shape than the X-bearing cells. So what next? Where do you go with all this uh, information that you now have? You've got the genetic information, you've got a bit of information about what might be going on in the sperm. What do you still need to discover? We need to find that last piece of the jigsaw, the bit in the middle. How does this genetic regulation actually translate into causing this difference in sperm morphology? We have some ideas about how to do that, and that's our next project over the next few years. But um, ideally, once we've found that link in the middle, we can then look to see, and how does this translate to other species? Can we use this to develop a way of sorting sperm in pigs or in cattle 
unlikely to be in humans because we don't have the same kind of amphiconic genes to the same extent that we see in many other species. But um, ideally, we can do something to reduce waste in the animal industry with this kind of information. Peter Ellis from the University of Kent. Moving from mice to larger mammals, Edinburgh has a rich tradition of animal genetics, particularly focused around the Roslin Institute, the birthplace of Dolly the sheep. But while most breeding programmes and genetic research focus on farmyard animals, there's been a lot less attention paid to the fleet-footed beasts of the field. Patrick Sharman, a PhD student at the University of Exeter, is taking a closer look at the genetics of racehorses. And he started by telling me the story of one of the most infamous horses in history. Ah, Snarfy Dancer. So Snarfy Dancer was sold at auction in 1983. He cost over $10 million. And this was a new record for a yearling. I think the previous highest was about $5 million. $10 million for a racehorse might not sound a lot until you consider he had never set foot on a racecourse. He was only 18 months old at the time. He'd never even been sat on by a jockey. And he was considered to have a great pedigree and he probably looked like he could run quite fast. It was a nice photo. He looks, looks like a good-looking horse. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the people who bought him knew what they were looking at, knew what they were talking about, knew far more than me about what a racehorse should look like. But unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. He was particularly slow, apparently. So much so, I don't think he ever made it to the racecourse. But given he had this great pedigree, he was sent to be a breeding stallion, see if he, he could be... Producing the next load of champions, went to sudden, turned out he was infertile. That's 10 million quid basically down the tubes. Um, I mean, funny story to us, but I'm sure not to them at the time. So let's look into this idea of like racehorses having a pedigree. Obviously, as people who are interested in genetics, pedigrees are all about genetics. They're looking at how things follow down the generations. So I would assume that racehorses have pedigrees and we must know a lot about their genetics. Well, we, we do have a pedigree record of racehorses going back, oh, I don't know, somewhere to the 1500s, 1600s. So in terms of a pedigree record, a genealogical record, it's an incredible record. Not 100% accurate, I think they found a, a few mismatches <laughs> along the way. But the naughty horses. <laughs> well, I, did, I think more naughty owners, actually, claiming their, their horses by a particular stallion, and it turned out it wasn't. Obviously, these days, you can't get away with that because everything's tested, blood samples are taken and parents are are tested. But yes, we have a great record of the thoroughbred pedigrees. Obviously, racehorse breeders have been trying to produce champions for hundreds of years, you know, long before Darwin came up with his theory of evolution by natural selection. Racehorse breeders were already using genetics. It wasn't called genetics at the time, but they were using their knowledge of pedigrees. They were selecting the best horses to breed and they were succeeding in improving the breed, and they still are. Obviously, we have all the pedigrees of racehorses, and we also have the records of how fast these horses have done. So what do we know about how this matches up to genetics? You mentioned that they'll take blood samples to prove that, you know, mummy horse and daddy horse are who we think they are. So can we use that genetic information to work out, like, is this actually going to be a fast horse? Theoretically, it's possible. There is at least one company I know of which collects blood samples and is capable of doing genomic testing. To what extent they've found genes responsible for performance, I'm not sure. It surprises me with an industry that's 
as wealthy as horse racing with, that's got these incredible records not only of the horse's performance but also of their pedigrees, it really surprises me that there hasn't been more interest in understanding which genes, which variations are related to horse racing performance. There, there hasn't been much implementation of what we would call quantitative genetics. Not that I know of. Of course, any organisation could be doing it behind closed doors and and why would they tell the rest of the world if they're being successful? So it could be happening without us knowing, but telling the racing world that there's another way of doing it, that they could use quantitative genetics, it's just another theory. You know, they've already got bookshelves of race breeding theories out there. We don't need your stinking genetics. Well, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's just another, another one. I mean, maybe they don't want to know. There's a... Uh, beauty in the mystery, I guess, of, of breeding racehorses. I mean, that, that certainly has a romantic aspect to it, whereas pig breeding and cattle breeding... It's, it's not romantic, pig breeding. So I've heard, I mean, I'm not <laughs> sure I'm not sure racehorse breeding is if you've actually been in a breeding shed, no. I find there's an interesting parallel with the genetics of humans doing sport, because I know there's some tests you can do, you can look at specific genetic variations and say, well, maybe you're a sprinter, maybe you're a more of a distance runner, that kind of thing. And I'm always a bit sketchy about that because there's so many variations that must add up to sporting ability, not just muscle strength, but your mindset and uh, you know how anxious you get. So would something similar be the case with a horse? You know, Can you not just say, well, you need to have long legs and big muscles, that's going to be a fast horse? Is, is there probably going to be more to it than that? Yeah, sure. In terms of distance preference, that's, I think, it's been found to be fairly highly heritable. But in terms of how good a horse is going to be, like you say, they need the right mindset. So even if they've got big lungs, a big heart, fast twitch muscles, when it comes to the final 100 yards of the race, you need the mentality as well. But we know that personality traits are heritable as well. So there's no reason you couldn't breed horses to be more competitive. And that happens anyway. I mean, when breeders select stallions to use for their mares, they are looking for stallions who produce winners who produce offspring who want to race I mean I've, I've known a few stallions who produce offspring who are a bit shy when it comes to the final 100 yards and they don't put in 100% effort and those stallions tend not to persist and presumably there must be ones who just get the killer instinct for the finish line yeah for sure there are certainly offspring of certain stallions which are strong in a finish you would say and finally, do you like a flutter? Do you watch the horsies and do you bet on them? Yeah, I grew up watching racing. I shouldn't say it, but I grew up betting as well. <laughs> Not in a serious way. Um, I blame my mother. <laughs> and do you still bet now, now that you know all this information? Well, the, the more I know, the worse I do and the, the less I try to bet. Very sound advice. That's Patrick Sharman from the University of Exeter. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and helps more people to discover the show and spread the word about the wonderful world of genetics. Now it's time to switch from animals to humans. 
the Medical Research Council's Human Genetics Unit in Edinburgh was originally set up in 1956, initially to study the impact of radiation on human health in the wake of the atomic bombs dropped at the end of the Second World War. At the time, the structure of DNA had only just been discovered, and while geneticists were busy crossing animals and plants to understand heredity and health, there were relatively few techniques for studying genes in human cells, and DNA sequencing wouldn't be invented for another 20 years. In fact, there was just one method, cytogenetics, literally looking at chromosomes down a microscope to spot any patterns or abnormalities. And, as the unit's current director, Wendy Bickmore, explained to me, with that simple tool, they set out to study the genomes of the world. So one thing the uh, unit did in the early days, after it was the MRC Group on Radiation Biology, became the MRC Clinical and Population Cytogenetics Unit. A real mouthful to say, (laughs) I have to say. But they went out and they started doing population genetics. They went out to a Hebridean island, the Outer Hebrides, a very small one called Barra, and they decided to just ask the question, how variable is the human genome, just by looking at it? And indeed they did find that it actually was what we call polymorphic. There are many forms of it. Just by looking down the microscope, you can see differences. Absolutely. So that laid down the idea that it would be worthwhile going out and looking at diverse human populations to see how much variation there is. So then you can fast forward into the molecular era where you can clone and sequence DNA. People then started trying to ask, can we link changes in the human genome to disease? And of course, many diseases have a genetic origin. And people started with the simple Mendelian disorders that are heritable. Cystic fibrosis is a good example. Huntington's career was uh, one of the early wins in this area. And people took very simple linkage approaches. You needed to assemble huge families and then be able to follow alleles. Big sort of family tree kind of thing. Yeah, at all, but pedigree-based. And that was very successful and and identified many genes causing uh, Mendelian disorders. But of course, that's limited. You need to have big pedigrees. You can only find Mendelian disorders this way. So these are the really obvious diseases where basically, if you've inherited either one copy of the kind of the Duff gene or two copies of the Duff gene, you are going to have the disease. And it's kind of fairly obvious to to spot it. Yes, yes, it is, uh, if you've got numbers. But people are actually going out now and specifically picking interesting groups of individuals, particularly those that are geographically isolated, to study their genetics. Because these are usually populations on islands or in small mountain-bound regions, which were founded by relatively small numbers of individuals, so-called founder populations, and their descendants have largely stayed in that region, and there hasn't been a huge influx of other people from outside. So that's a really interesting genetic structure. Uh, And in that situation, rare genetic variants that are rare in the whole population of a country or a continent can rise to quite high frequency just by chance. It's called the jackpot effect in these small bottleneck populations. But of course now we can move beyond that and really start to look in nuclear families, trios, mother, father, one child, with no other pedigree information than that, to try and see if there are genetic variants associated, for example, with a major developmental problem uh, in a newborn baby. New mutations, what we call de novo mutations in them, that neither of the parents had. Because each of us acquires about 50 new mutations in our genome that our parents never had. So copying the genome is very, very good, but it's so big 
you know, errors creep in. And so every generation accumulates new mutations. I kind of call this like the Philip Larkin effect. You know, they, they muck you up, your mum and dad. <laughs> they, they throw in all the things they had and just a few just for you. Yes. They do try very hard not to, but it's not perfect. Tell me about one of the populations that you've been studying, the, the Northern Isles. What is this area and who are these people? The Northern Isles are Orkney and Shetland. They're off the north coast of Scotland. Actually, if you look on the map for Shetland, it's close to Norway as it is to Scotland and the UK. And so it turns out that these individuals, these islands were founded by people from the Scottish mainland, but also from Norway, with Norse ancestry. Vikings? And essentially, yes, the study is actually called the Viking Health Study. So they are Vikings. So actually in the study, we've only chosen to study people in the population now who can show that they've had at least two grandparents, preferably all four grandparents, originating from the Northern Isles as well, so that we know that we're looking at the genotypes of that ancient founding population. And so what have you started to find? First of all, we're understanding the architecture of, of the whole population, but we are indeed starting to, first of all, be able to link lots and lots of different traits to genetic markers in the population that affect the health of the population, so what we call common disease. But we're also finding those rare alleles, those rare variants... The jackpots. The jackpots that cause uh, much more um, severe monogenic disease. And actually have uh, recently been able to publish a case where a a damaging variant in a a gene which can give rise to something called long QT syndrome, which affects heart rhythm and can result in really catastrophic cardiac failure. And being able to find actually within the isolate population, we can trace that allele back to other distant members in in the same population. People who don't know they're related to each other, but they share that ancient genetic variant and be able to identify to their health practitioners, their GPs, that they may have a genetic change that may put them at risk. Looking into the future, now we're gathering hundreds of thousands, even millions of DNA sequences from people all over the world. How should we start to think about this concept of the human genome? What is the human genome of the future? Well, of course, there isn't a human genome. There are billions of human genomes, tens of billions of human genomes. And so there's, you know, in genetics, we often talk about things like wild type and mutant. But there's no such thing in the human population as wild type. We are all mutants. We're all wild or we're all mutants, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, so studying that diversity is really interesting from the point of view of biology and medicine. I think it's also really fascinating from the point of view of human history, being able to understand the history of human migrations and social changes. I had a conversation recently with a colleague from India where they also have isolate populations that are isolated, not geographically, because they're stuck on an island, but they're isolated socially by the caste system in India. So that creates these rare jackpot alleles in communities uh, that are living side by side but with other communities, but that really the genetic information doesn't mix. So uncovering all that, it's going to be so interesting for understanding the history of, of countries and nations and populations, I think. Wendy Bickmore, the director of the MRC Human Genetics Unit in Edinburgh. Finally, the Genetic Society Centenary Conference was rounded off by fiddle player and former neuroscientist Lewis Hu and his Cayley Band. I caught up with him after a riotous round of Strip the Helix to find out more about his blend of science communication and folk dancing. 
So my background is in traditional music as well as in um, neuroscience originally and in public engagement I was really interested in how to work with everybody and not just people who already engage in science and the nice thing about Kaylee, if you've ever done a Kaylee, is it's not about how good a dancer you are as we found out in the conference. Yeah, I, we've just finished, I am very sweaty <laughs> and my feet kind of hurt, I'm covered in bruises, look at that and I can confirm that pretty much no one was a good dancer by that point. <laughs> but. The spirit of it is all about the participation. So it's just everyone gets up and gives it a wee go. And that's exactly the spirit that we want to bring into science. So you don't have to be an expert, but can everyone feel welcome? We have two genetic dancers that we developed with uh, Welcome Trust um, and researchers here in Edinburgh. We have the Mitosis Waltz, uh, which we developed with some community groups. And that explains the different um, stages of mitosis in a very beautiful dance, very similar to St. Bernard's, but it's quite a new dance. So that's my mitosis is the process of like DNA being copied and cells divided. So how, how do you work out like what, what steps you show that with? So we worked with dancers and community groups and researchers. So we kind of did it as a kind of a co-production. And so there's a stage in mitosis where all the chromosomes come into the middle of the room, for example. And so we, we film that in the video with dancers coming into the middle and then they kind of break apart from the partners into two halves. So mitosis is the kind of forming of new cells. Um, and so we represent that in dance form. And then what about the, uh, the stripping the helix? Because that's what we've just done. Very, very fun. Very, very chaotic. What are you trying to show there? So our Orcadian Strip the Helix, um, the video version, which is much more controlled than the one in, uh, in practice, um, shows four uh, dancers in four different colours. So they're paired with a partner based on the colour or the adenine and uh, thymine and cytosine and guanine, for example. And then what happens is they split into two groups and then they do what looks a little bit like the traditional strip the willow, which uh, consists of, you know, I guess a partner at the very top, a couple at the very top coming down, going to each of the partners or bases for want of a better words, and they represent polymerase. And I think it's just trying to approximate it. And then on the video, we do it in a slightly more controlled manner. We show how mutations happen, so we throw away the wrong dancers, and they get replaced. Well, I will say, uh, I know a little bit about genetics, and there was definitely some replication slippage, <laughs> because the first time up and down the strands, I was dancing with one person, mm -hmm. and then the second time around, it's like, you aren't the base I started <laughs> with, but we'll do it anyway. Absolutely. And so when we're working with schools, that would be a great opportunity for us to talk about you know different types of mutations point mutations or is it kind of a whole slip and and we can talk about these as proper dance models and criticize them but also you know use them just for fun it certainly was a lot of fun uh, although maybe less so the following morning that's science kaylee founder lewis who and you can find out more and book your own event at sciencekaylee.com. And Kaylee is spelt C-E-I-L-I-D-H. Or you can just follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. That's all for now. We're going to be taking a break for Christmas and we'll be back with a new show on the 2nd of January. But don't go anywhere, because like a scientific Santa Claus, we will be bringing you a few treats over the festive season. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, go to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip. And please, 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 please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and, you know, does something with the algorithm or whatever. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Katani, and it's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. 
You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo was designed by James Mail. Transcription is by Viv Andrews and productions by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.